Welcome to the second episode of Maastricht Law Talk. My name is Benedict and I'm today in the beautiful city of Leiden in the north of the Netherlands. I'm here with Professor Ten Vorde from Leiden University. More after the intro. Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Today we will talk about state-caused harm. This is a very broad topic um, and I have... Professor Ten Vorde with me. He is an associate professor of criminal law and criminal procedure at uh, the University of Leiden and a professor of philosophy of law at the University College of Groningen. Hello, welcome. Welcome, thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Um, you studied yourself in Rotterdam. Um, that, I guess, was still before the whole bachelor-master um, system. That's true. I studied in Rotterdam from 1996 to 2001. Okay. And you, did you also write your PhD there? True, I did, yeah. That is on the topic of culture as a defense, a fund foundational theoretical study of the space and limits of cultural diversity in some doctrines of sustainable criminal law. Can you briefly, in one sentence, we might come back later um, to that, explain what this thesis was about? Well, the thesis was about um, how to deal with cultural differences in criminal law. Um, societies have become multicultural, uh, cultures have uh, different uh, ideas about norms and uh, how you should deal with those, uh, deal with issues. Um, uh, you have all sorts of crimes like honor-related violence, uh, female circumcision. They are punishable under uh, Dutch criminal law, for example, but are allowed under the law uh, of uh, various uh, ethnic groups. And the question uh, I raised in my uh, PhD thesis was uh, how we should deal with those norms. Uh, should we allow uh, people to um, to kill other people because of their honor? Should we allow uh, people to circumcise their daughters or their children in general because of their culture? That was the question I uh, I addressed. Next to the professorship, you are um, a member of the Institute for Criminal Law and Criminology at Leiden University and advise the Dutch Ministry of Justice on honor-related violence. Um, in addition to that, you are a judge substitute of the uh, Court of North Holland, um, which might play uh, very nicely into the whole um, discussion we have today. And I would just very uh, broadly start with the question, what is state-caused harm? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, because... Before answering that question, we have to know what is meant by the state, what is meant by harm, and what is meant by causing harm. Um, these are all very interesting and very difficult questions. They're also uh, they're not only legal questions, but in the beginning there are more philosophical questions. Um, and I think to start with uh, with harm. One can imagine, of course, what harm is. Uh, if someone punishes another person and he inflicts pain, that is harm. Sorry for the clock. <laughs> um, when uh, a person uh, steals money, 
uh, or steals a car from another person, he, he, there, there, you can also say there's harm, but it's not physical harm, but it is harm because of losing one's property. Um, and there is a, the, the issue of harm is, of course, very old. Um, the, uh, the Italian uh, criminal philosopher uh, Beccaria also already stated that uh, only because of harm the state can intervene in people's lives. And of course, it was John Stuart Mill, the, uh, the British philosopher, who said that the that the only uh, uh, the only time a state can intervene is when somebody causes harm to others. Um, but that doesn't specify what is meant by by harm. And I think that. Um, one can say that that uh, causing harm is um, uh, causing setbacks, um, setbacks in, in in one's physical, um, well, one's physique, uh, setbacks when it comes to one's uh, one's property, setbacks when it comes to one's uh, one's liberties in general. So I think. Speaking of harm, you can say that it is more than just physical pain and suffering. Uh, it is also causing uh, harm. Also, uh, has to do with uh, with with liberties and with setbacks of liberties in general. So the second question then is: Is what is a state? Um, I think we all can uh, we all can imagine what a state is, but it's from a philosophical point of view, it's very difficult to say what entity or what body. Um, uh, is meant by uh, when we talk about the state. So I think I think it's very difficult to answer that question. But is that is that directly related to the um, international law question of a state of the Montevideo Convention, etc.? Or does criminal law then has some kind of own uh, like an own view on that topic in addition to the international um, definition of state? No, I don't think that the criminal law has a specific idea on what the state is uh, apart from international criminal law of course where it's become a very important topic but for national criminal law um, the important issue is what is the jurisdiction of its criminal law? What are the boundaries of its criminal law? And um, the state's boundaries which are internationally defined and which are nationally defined um, make um, the state when it comes for criminal law um, so of course it has to do with international law and in, with international uh, ideas about the, the ideas within the international law of what is uh, what is um, what is comprised of what is meant to be a state uh, but from a criminal law perspective it is well um, the state is the the geographically bounded um, uh, area uh, which is governed by a government uh, which is democratically chosen or not which has a um, uh, which has a parliament which has a central government which has local governments which has uh, a judiciary uh, executive powers etc etc within specific boundaries I think that's Uh, for the moment, we can call a state, but it's, well, a bit of a loose definition, uh, so to speak. When we take a look at the history of the emerge of criminal law, then um, I would say with this definition, um, the state was always a very important actor. Yeah, but um, there are no states, uh, no criminal law without a state. Um, there is a... The, the, you can say that that the emerging of states... 
um, in Europe, uh, let me confine to that, but in, within Europe, um, in, in Western Europe, um, uh, the emergence of state, of central government, um, well, realized criminal law, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, there were always systems of punishment within local groups, uh, within local communities, within families. Um, but um, uh, a criminal law, as we know today, uh, where a state inflicts harm by punishing people for committing crimes, that has come into emergence since the, since the 11th, 12th century. Depends on where you look at. Uh, there are, of course, areas in Europe where it emerges quite late and there are areas in in europe where it emerges quite 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 early and um but today modern criminal law emerged uh, in the netherlands in germany in france in belgium uh, from the 11th 12th century when central governments were organized and when effective government came into existence because uh, criminal law can only exist when there is an effective government um if there is no effective government um which can um, uh, make rules and uh, upheld those rules, um, you can have criminal law in the books, but not in practice. And only when criminal law, only when, when, when governments were, were able to, to really, um, yeah, well, inflict their powers on people, then a, a criminal law could emerge. Uh, but but th- obviously there were... Um well, not maybe not crimes as in a sense we call them today, but there were some acts that weren't desired before the emerge of criminal law. True. And what made, what was the need to establish such a criminal law? Was it the state wanting to control its people? Was it the state thinking, okay, the people want control, we should control them? Or what was the, the, the valid reason, if, if there is one, historically speaking? Well, um, the emerging of criminal law, you have to realize that there, are, there weren't any democracies uh, at that time, uh, not uh, in the way we speak of it today. There were rulers, king, dukes, counts, what have you, um, that wanted to have control. Um, and in order to, to, to have control and in order to... to um, to to uh, show off their powers, um, they wanted to have something um, they could use to control people, and the criminal law, of course, was and still is uh, a way of controlling people, controlling their acts. And what in in um, in the early days, so to speak, the uh, the the criminal law was um, uh, was based on what you can call common law. Um, the uh, uh, there were of course uh, uh, rules among people among groups of people um, that forbade killing that forbade theft uh, that forbade um, um, all sorts of what we can now call crimes and on one stage um, uh, societies grew um, um, uh, and groups were not able to control um uh their people um and th- sought well solutions for maintaining rules maintaining control maintaining power and a and a a king emerged and said oh i'll do it for you <laughs> so to speak <clears throat> um 
and that is the first that is the first part now the idea that a king um wanted to control the existing rules and wanted to upheld the existing rules and after that when they got their control the kings thought well i have some rules of my own uh i think it would be wise to control this and that and etc etc so the criminal law emerged from maintaining the existing laws the existing common laws and then it changed into uh, not only maintaining existing laws but also implementing new laws and um, uh, subsequently um, controlling people and saying you have to upheld these laws as well the laws that i made and the emergence of criminal law is then um, uh, not only well on the continent it is not only common law but it has also become law which was written down in books made by a government um, uh, where the government said we have to upheld these laws. When did that start? When did the codification of the era of criminal law start? Can we look at um, the Napoleon time and then say it was not only the Code Civil, but the Code uh, Penal that then started this movement, or was there just a different kind of um, written criminal laws before already? Oh, there were many written criminal laws before, but um, the the uh, the codification period at the end of the 18th century um, had its own ideas and its own um, um, ideals, so to speak, uh, why uh, the civil law, the criminal law, should be codified in a way it is now on the continent with codes, code of criminal procedure, civil code, etc., etc. But written laws are very old um, um, they um, on on uh, they emerged from 12th 13th century even older uh, many laws that were written down during the period of charlemagne um, uh, there you can't say that is pure civil law or pure criminal law it's a mixture of what we now call civil and criminal law but written criminal law in our are um, uh, in 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 the Netherlands or in Germany they emerged well quite early and many um, many kings and emperors tried over the centuries to 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 get some sort of a codification and first of all the codification was to to get more power because if you have the control of the text of the law you have the control over how to what is the law. Um, uh, if you are the author of a code, uh, then you can say to judges, especially at that time, to judges, you have to do this. You have to. You can install a prosecution service that, um, in your name, prosecutes people. Um, so it is a, a an, an idea of control. That was the the idea of uh, the, the the criminalis, for example, uh, the Carolina. Um, the um, the the well, you, you can't really call it a code in modern words in modern uh, modern day time, but uh, a pre-code, a proto-code, you can call it, uh, by uh, Charles V, the emperor, um, um, and from the you can say from the 18th century onwards, um, during the period of enlightenment, uh, enlightenment, many uh, kings in Europe, in Sweden, in Denmark. Um, uh, in Austria, in Prussia, um, in France, tried to make a code 
which contained the entire criminal law as it was uh, known um, by then. And the, especially in Austria, as a, a very famous example, there are many Austrian proto-codes, you can call them, uh, by various Austrian empire, emperors um, who had the idea, first of all, to, to have the idea that, that they wanted to have control. Uh, because there was a vast empire, and the emperor was in uh, Vienna, um, and he didn't know what a judge did in Salzburg yeah. or Prague or what have you. So um, uh, by making a code, he could say to the judge, this is the law, you should do this. Mm -hmm. um, and from the, the end of the 18th century, we also see, um, especially during the period of enlightenment in Austria, that the Austrian empires not only want to have control, but also said... Uh, we want to um, to have a criminal law which says what is punishable, but which also um, then says what people are allowed to do. So it also defines liberties. Um, oh, so not just negative, but also positive. True. Um, okay. And that is uh, that idea, which which um, uh, where Austria was uh, was not wasn't the first country, but it's very visual, visual, uh, visible. I have to say, visible in uh, the Austrian codes that well came into existence um, uh, over a period of 30, 40 years. Many codes were were. Uh, uh, were made during that period, the end of the 18th century, there was a change in how to view a code, not only to to control people, those who give them liberties. And if we look at codes now and look at the period of codification, that that idea of of liberty um, versus control, that is the whole idea of codification. Codification is the 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 the, the a manner in which modern states governed by the rule of law. Um, tried to to control on the one hand um, um, people, their citizens, um, but on the other hand gave them freedoms. Uh, that what is not explicitly forbidden is allowed, mm -hmm. um, and that means that it has all sorts of consequences. Uh, it has to have a, a legislator which uh, which knows very well what to criminalize and make very specific and explicit um, uh, uh, criminalization, uh, very clear defined uh, offenses. It should have judges who do only uh, what uh, the law allows them to do. Uh, you know probably the, uh, the famous uh, expression of Montesquieu, the judge is the mouth of the law, <laughs> bouche de la loi. Yeah. Um, um, it has been misinterpreted uh, over the centuries, but in a well, a strict manner, to, in a strict, strictest way to speak, is the, the judge can only do what the law says. Um, there's no room for interpretation uh, of the law. There's no the, the only the only thing that the judge has to do is to to mm. upheld the law. That's all. So basically, underlying his idea of a trias politica. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, and and. Um, that idea of trius politica is very important for having a code because it says it gives, also gives um, uh, a clear definition of the and clear uh, understanding of the responsibilities because uh, the code is the sole responsibility for the legislator, where the other uh, powers, 
the the executive power and the judges only have uh, a very limited uh, limited powers when it comes to, to the code. The, the judges only have to upheld the codes, and the uh, adjudic- uh, executive powers only have to to um, to search uh, for criminal offenses and bring those criminal offenses to and bring the perpetrators to uh, to the courts. Very interesting. You, you've mentioned the uh, kinds of offenses, the content of the criminal law, um, but what makes behavior criminal if we look at criminal law is it merely the act itself the written down mm-hmm. offense or is there especially from the philosophical perspective more behind that oh there is but that has become um, uh, the issue in the 19th century because the uh, great codificators in the in the early 19th century uh, especially in france uh, said uh, that what is written down in the code is what is society uh, is. Mm-hmm. Um, the code resembles society; it reflects society. Um, and what is what happened in the nineteenth century? Because uh, because the the nineteenth century is also the century of the discovery of, of of fields of sociology, psychology, psychiatry. Um, during the nineteenth century, many scholars. From those fields, um, they also said they said, "Well, the code is not what what is the truth. Uh, society is much more complex. Uh, society does not uh, is not reflected uh, in a code. A, the code is just a way of expressing the law, but it's not how society looks like." So they said, "We have to look at what society really is." Um, and um, is that then the enlightenment aspect, or is that that was a consequence of the enlightenment? You can okay, say yeah. um, the enlightenment uh, is, of course, the period where uh, where where uh, um, uh, empirical research was discovered, so to speak. Uh, not only uh, empirical research uh, uh, in physics and chemistry and, and biology, but also. Uh, researching society and researching um, uh, human beings, so to speak. So sociology and and psychology. And those scholars, sociologists, Comte, but later on Durkheim, uh, they said, well, what is reflect, what is put in a code does is not how society looks like. We should look um, uh, at what people really do and why people commit crimes, for example. Um, the people who made the codes had some ideas about how society looked like and they had some ideas on why people commit crimes of course um, but that was not based on empirical research and it's the empirical research and the that has changed our views and our ideas on society on on human beings on why people commit crimes or why particular crimes are committed in particular societies um, and that has changed uh, the criminal law, but not in the early 19th century, but especially at the end of the 19th century, during the what we call in the Netherlands and what is called in, in other periods, well, the, the new new directions in criminal law. Moderne Richtung von Liszt is a very um, a prime example of a German scholar who said we have to look 
uh, at criminal law in a totally different way than we are doing right now. Mainly because he was influenced by ideas about information he got from other uh, from other uh, uh, other sciences like sociology. But if criminal law should reflect at some point um, the society of a country or the society as a whole, mm -hmm. um, very often there are conflicts between the uh, societal aspect and the law itself. When we mm -hmm. look in countries um, that may still ban homosexuality or that um, ban abortion, etc. And the, very often the, the um, society itself is not behind that. True. Is then just the legislators act to, to act? To It depends, of course. Um, if uh, a majority of the voters are still in favor of banning homosexuality or abortion, um, uh, then a legislator will not be uh, in the situation to change the law, of course. But but, but is it then that, that easy? When we look at the United States, for example, mm -hmm. um, especially there, the Supreme Court now gets in the position... Uh, <laughs> to basically um, change the very fundamentals of some legal aspects. And this happens not only in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, is the criminal law maybe very, just very hesitant to change? Uh, is criminal law very hesitant to change? In general, it is. Yeah, it's not a very... Um, um, well, you can't say it to be conservative criminal law, but... Uh, changes in society are reflected, of course, in criminal law, but it doesn't happen very, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes time uh, for the. In general, it takes time for the law to change, but especially when it comes to criminal law, um, that that needs time to change, and that has to do with with uh, with parliamentary discussions. It has to do with uh, with the influence of lobby groups. Uh, yeah, that has to do with all sorts of uh, of aspects. But I think that that the 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 interesting thing uh, what has happened with the criminal law is that um, during the 19th century, um, criminal law became a very uh, scientific. The criminal law became was approached very scientifically. You had the doctrines. Uh, you had uh, all sorts of ideas on punishment, but it was a very Uh, scientific approach, almost a very, on the other, yeah, you can say a more philosophical approach on uh, the criminal law. We were not interested, um, uh, people were not interested, scholars were not interested in how the criminal law really functions. Um, and only at the end of the 19th century, then scholars uh, became interested in how criminal law really functions and and what crime should be really criminalized and why before that there was no discussion about that because we thought that what has been criminalized is is what we the people think that it that should be criminalized uh, and it is only bec because of the, the societal changes uh, the uh, the uh, um, Well, the, the fact that people became less religious and or less dependent on religion, um, the fact that uh, societies became plural, so to speak, that also caused discussions on how to, what to criminalize, how to criminalize. And the question, of course, then is who should be in the lead? 
Um, and from a very classical point of view, the legislator should, should be in the lead. But if a legislator is not a, not um, um, able to to change the law um, uh, very quickly, um, uh, the issue still remains. Abortion is a, a prime example. Was a prime example mm -hmm. in the United States for, and it still is a prime example in the United States. Euthanasia was a very important topic in the Netherlands. Um, euthanasia is not allowed in the Netherlands, except in very specific circumstances when a doctor is allowed to to help a patient who uh, is in real pain um, uh, and and ask the doctor uh, to to help him to die. Um, that is now in the law. Um, but it took decades for the legislator to change the law. Yeah. But the issue of euthanasia um, uh, came, well, into public debates and, and uh, in the early 1970s. And then what happened? Uh, a doctor helped a patient to die. He was prosecuted. And then the judge had to decide. And from a classical point of view, a judge could say, I'm only bouche de la loi. I'm not allowed to, to change the law. I'm not allowed to interpret the law. Uh, I, I cannot deal with changing societal circumstances. So those judges could say, we're going to punish you because you committed a crime. That is not what judges did because they developed uh, the law concerning euthanasia because they felt that society was changing and they felt they had to deal with that. And the same accounts for the, for the United States. The famous Roe versus Wade verdict on, on abortion. Um, um, the court may, could make that decision and made that decision because the, legislator, the legislators in the, in the United States weren't in the position to change the law because it was still a very highly topic, political debate. Uh, it was highly politicized. It still is highly politicized. Uh, and so, the, but the courts were, um, were, yeah, in the position, were not in the position not to deal with those cases because those cases came on their plates. So they had to, to, they have to decide. Um, so what you see, and that is a very important issue as well, that where legislators are not in the position to change the law or uh, uh, are very hesitant to change the law or take a very long time to change the law, um, the law continues and, and um, um, all sorts of issues arise and judges have to decide. So that changed the position of judges, not only in the Netherlands and in the United States, but also um, uh, on other, in other countries, especially on the continent. Um, many judges, many courts in many countries were faced with, with um, uh, societal issues where in the old days a legislator would decide, but now they had, uh, they were, well, because they were, they are duty bound to decide. They had to decide. So they did. Having established how the content of criminal law um, comes into place, or let's say, um, yeah, what behavior is punishable, um, then we can um, could maybe take a tiny step back um, and look at this word punishable. It includes punishment. Mm -hmm. um, why do we do? Why do we punish? There are different theories on that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, why? Why is there punishment? <laughs> Um, 
if you look at the theory, there are various theories uh, on why we punish. Um, I think that, that the first issue is why we punish is a very important question. And um, I think people nowadays tend to, to, to well, uh, step over that question because they think that it's very normal to punish. <laughs> um, it is a it is a very normal thing yeah. to do. Um, uh, we live in societies where we have um, um, placed a lot of trust in punishments. Um, so punishment is self evident. It's logical. It just happens. It you don't should be done. Yeah. And, and uh, people are very angry when a person is not punished. Mm. Um, whereas legal scholars, and especially in the field of criminal law, always say, "Well, anything but." <laughs> that is uh, yeah the criminal law should be the the uh ultimate remedium um when it comes to dealing with uh with problems but of course uh having said that um uh, criminal laws also know that there are situations where you have to punish but they also are very hesitant to punish that is i think very important to say punishment is very uh is inflicting harm is 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 uh is is uh inflicting harm it used to be inflicting harms uh inflicting harm. capital punishment is a very prime example of course but it is now um uh you can say imprisonment is not inflicting harm as such but it is well you you lose your your liberty to mm -hmm. to, to to walk Uh, freely if you have to pay a fine you're not allowed you're you're not able to use that money for something you really wanted to do uh, you want to buy a new car but you have to pay a fine you can't buy the car um so that is we have to understand that that is uh very serious and it's also very interesting of course because when we punish we say well you the perpetrator has inflicted harm and now we're going to do the same by way of punishment Because we do not allow you to to inflict harm, you understand? You, should, mm -hmm. you inflicted harm, and then as a, we say, you're not allowed to inflict harm. And But as you a, yourself, the uh, state yeah, does it. The state itself. does it. <laughs> that is, of course, Power, yeah. peculiar so to speak so there are but there are various um, explanations or various um, uh, justifications for uh, for punishment and i think well you can't say there is a uh, there are three um, main uh, theories the first of all is retribution um, uh, the second is uh, is a more utilitarian uh, uh, perspective on punishment um, and there are of course uh, well um, You can call them mixed six, mixed systems or mixed um, justifications uh, of punishment. If we start with retribution, um, uh, retribution is a very old uh, and very familiar known uh, justification of punishment. It, it is a very, in the core, it's a very simple. Um, it's a very simple justification of punishment because so, so basically saying A has committed a crime because A has committed this crime, A has to be punished. True. Yeah. yeah, and the only you know, and and the justification for the punishment is because he has com uh, committed a crime. Mm -hmm. um, there are of course some some we have to 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 work it out because we have to. It, it's not that simple because the person that committed a crime um, was an autonomous autonomous person. He mm -hmm. he had he committed the crime uh, out of free will. 
Um, uh, so that is a, a very important aspect of, of retribution nowadays. It, it not necessarily was uh, in the old days, but nowadays we say, well, retribution, you also have to be guilty. Yeah. And it is it's kind of your choice to commit a crime then? Yeah, you choose to commit a crime. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and because you chose to commit a crime, um, you also chose to be punished. You know that, that the consequence of, uh, of, of committing a crime is that you can be punished. And mm -hmm. you accept that, um, so to speak. Um, um, Another point of, uh, when it comes to retribution is it is um, based on the idea of proportionality and equality. Um, uh, every person uh, should be punished uh, uh, in the same way. Uh, but but what, what what I mean? How do you calculate proportionality then? If I um, <laughs> yeah I don't know. Um, Uh, cut off your arm shall i have half my uh, my arm cut off as well or is that like every second centimeter in my arm amounts to a year of imprisonment or mm -hmm. it's the most difficult question for uh for people who are for retributivists because uh the idea of proportionality in in you can say well yeah if you uh you 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 cut one's arm or one's finger you should be uh Uh, inflicted the same uh, suffering. Uh, you should lose a finger or the arm. That's the biblical talio principle. An eye for an eye. Uh, but only one eye. Mm -mm. That is proportional. You're not allowed to take both eyes because you only took, on, you only took out one eye. So that, that is the proportionality, you can say. Um, on the other hand, um, if, you're a if you're a rapist... The punishment of the punishment cannot be that you are raped as well. Yeah, from a talio principle, that would be the the consequence. But that, of course, is very strange. So, why do are are we? Uh, it's a very right. It's a very very good question. And, and I could imagine generally physical harm. That's the infliction of physical harm through the state is probably um, it's forbidden. Exactly. That's the thing. Right, so you can't apply this. Um, no, it's absolutely forbidden. And, and it, from a from a philosophical perspective, it is it is almost unthinkable. But also from a legal perspective, Article Three of the European Convention um, does not allow uh, that kind of torture. Of mm. course, so the death penalty is forbidden as well. So you can't do that. But what makes proportionality well? Depends on the theory, uh, and the, and the, there are many theorists who have uh, thought it over and. Some say it depends on what you have done. Um, that is the the, the first uh, aspect. Uh, the more serious crime you've committed, the more the most more serious the punishment can be. Yeah. Um, second of all, it depends on, on on the amount of guilt. Um, if you have, um, uh, let's say, uh, you um, you're driving your car, and you see a person who wants to um, to cross over, um, and you. Uh, You hate that person, and you uh, you deliberately um, uh, decide to run over. Yeah, you person. drive. You you deliberately uh, crash into him, so to speak. Um, that is totally different from um, uh, a person who drives his car and um, sees a person who wants to cross the street, but thinks, "Oh well, I can pass," mm -hmm. but he can't. 
uh, and he hits the person, and the person dies. That is that that is of course a different. Well, would that then already fall out out of the culpability aspect of retributive justice? No, it depends on what you think is culpable. If you think that uh, the only culpability that is allowed under retributive justice is when you intentionally kill somebody Mm -hmm. or intentionally inflict uh, harm or suffering, then you can say, well, if you do it in a negligent way, you're not punishable. You can say that. Uh, but if you say no, what well, that's a kind of uh, a, a kind of culpability to act negligent because you know you can inflict harm, but you think, well, it will, it will turn right, it will will I won't have a problem. I will I will not hit him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you think that that is also uh, 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 should be culpable. Um, then you can think about punishment. But you probably would say um, uh, acting like that and uh, uh, having that kind of culpability is less serious Mm -hmm. than intentionally killing someone. So that can also uh, help in in deciding uh, what the the proportional punishment could be. Um, And um, you can also imagine that if you look at culpability, you can also look at um, uh, the idea of a free will. Um, not all people commit crimes under free will. Um, uh, as a judge, I had a case uh, a few weeks ago of a man um, who was schizophrenic and who um, uh, cut a woman with a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was psychotic. Uh, he was, uh, well, diagnosed uh, schizophrenic. So the question was, was he criminally liable? Uh, uh, did he commit a crime uh, with a free will? If you say, no, well, people who are not uh, having a free will or are having a diminished free will, you can say, well, uh, if you don't, do not have a free will, you're, you cannot be punished. Uh, and if you have a diminished uh, free will, uh, you can say, well, we're not going to punish you. That's severe. Um, so that can also help in deciding proportionality. So proportionality can can be uh, based on the seriousness of the crime, but you can also imagine that the person who committed the crime uh, and and the uh, intentionality uh, uh, in which the crime was committed can also help in deciding whether or not uh, what what a proportional sentence could be. In the strict sense, um, traditionally speaking, retributive justice would then exclude someone that has a psychological problem in this, like someone, yeah, if if it's really not committed in a free will. So would this traditionally mean there is no prosecution whatsoever? Uh, oh, prosecution! I wouldn't say. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But punishment. Uh, punishment I would say. Yes. I would right. say that uh, there won't be puni- that from a traditional point of view. If you think that within a, a retributive theory, um, guilt is a prime is a, a very important aspect, then yes, without any guilt, you can't be punished mm-hmm. from a retributive perspective. Yeah. Yeah. If you say. There are retributivists, especially the old ones who were not interested in guilt, would not have to do with that topic. But present-day retributivists place a lot of importance in in the aspect of guilt and and the, the autonomy of the person, which is uh, you can only have guilt when you have uh, when you are a, an autonomous person, a person with a uh, a free will, so to speak. Then 
uh, without the free will, you cannot be punished. No. What is then the difference to the utilitarian theory? You've mentioned that already before. Well, the difference between utilitarianism and retributivism is that why, where a retributive looks backward and looks at the crime that has been committed, um, the utilitarian perspective looks forward. Um, what are the effects of, of, uh, of punishment? Um, and um, uh, that depends on whether or not to punish. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what crime has been committed um, who the person was who committed the crime um, is from a uh, utilitarian perspective not very interesting it is what uh, uh, the punishment can achieve so to speak so uh, it's just important that there was a crime it doesn't really matter um, yeah, question whether is, there was a free will or not it's really just can we somewhat solve this Yeah, well, you can. We have to have. There are two perspectives. The first perspective is: Do you not need to have a crime? Mm -hmm. Because from a retributive perspective, you need to have a crime before you can punish. Okay, it sounds that early. But from a utilitarian perspective, um, you can say: Well, is it necessary uh, to uh, to punish someone who has committed a crime? Is it? Can we also? punish someone who hasn't committed a crime but when we punish him we will deter himself not to commit crimes um, prevent him from committing crimes not mm -hmm. only himself but also society could we make uh, could we take a person as an example for society and say well if you are going to commit crimes this will be the consequence you are going to be punished And hopefully that will deter people um, and uh, will decide and people will decide not to commit crimes because they will uh, think, well, this is not a very wise thing to do. Uh, I want to lead a very normal life and it, it doesn't benefit me uh, if I am going to commit a crime. From a utilitarian, per utilitarian perspective, the people are very um, are thinking economical. Um, what gives me the most benefits. Um, uh, and if you are on a crossroads and, and uh, are, are asked the question or you're asking yourself the question, should I commit the crime? Um, then, you, then you compare what you will gain from the cr crime versus what you will lose mm -hmm. by way of punishment. And if the punishment in your perspective is, um, uh, if you are worse off because you are punished, you will not commit the crime. That is the whole idea of uh, of a ret of a, a, a utilitarian perspective on punishment. It has to deter you uh, in such a way that you are not allowed that you will not commit the crime because it does not benefit you. So the proportionality is, I guess, not a very important factor. Not at all. Not at all. Not a well. There, of course. The, the, It is of course uh, uh, important, but the the issue is not uh, whether the crime, uh, whether the punishment is proportional in comparison to the crime you've committed, but whether or not the crime, uh, whether or not the punishment is proportional in the way of the benefits of the crime. So you can imagine that there are some sort of proportionality, but it is not the 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 um, uh, the topic where classical utilitarians uh, utilitarians are very interested in. The the you, 
from a retributive point of view, uh, proportionality is the most important or one of the most important topics and one of the one of the most uh, difficult topics. From a utilitarian perspective, proportionality is of course to be dealt with, but is not the most important aspect. No. So I would say that then both of them also follow completely different goals of punishment. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you can imagine. You can wonder whether or not retributive theory really has a goal. What is the goal of retributive punishment? There is not really a goal. There is only the idea that if a person commits a crime, he has to be punished. And from a very classical retributive perspective, like the uh, German philosopher Kant, he said, if a person commits a crime, he should be punished. Um, uh, so the issue of retributivists is uh, how do we get people punished for committing crimes? Whereas a retributivist, if a, a, a utilitarian, um, from a utilitarian perspective, the idea of, of punishment is that, uh, that if it doesn't benefit, it's not necessary to punish because uh, you can get a deterrent effect from anything else. Taxes, for example. Um, uh, please do not use the criminal law. Uh, use something which really works. Uh, utilitarian perspective is really what works uh, and then you can say there is a goal because the goal is it should work it should deter people not to commit crimes or it should deter society as a whole not to commit crimes and how <laughs> do those principles theories work these days well um, can we still distinguish systems or isn't rather all of the legal systems we have, or most of them, such a third category of a mixed system? Does they re do they really depend on those theories these days, or is it rather a mixture of everything? And um, well, you have to make a difference between uh, uh, the theory and practice, of course. Mm -hmm. um, um, from a theoretical perspective, th those theories are very much alive and very much debated. But if we look at legal practice in the Netherlands, but in other countries as well, we see that um, uh, that there are, are of course mixtures. Uh, there are uh, that retributive elements and utilitarian elements are combined, uh, or well, people are at least trying to combine uh, the ideas of those theories of punishment um, uh, in legal practice. You see in various countries that. Um, I believe in the in the German uh, Strafgesetzbuch, but also in other uh, other criminal codes uh, elsewhere, you see that uh, there are articles uh, in those codes which um, uh, which state something about the goals of punishment, where you can find retributive and utilitarian uh, elements. Um, uh, there are many countries where you can't find it. In Belgium, in the Netherlands, you don't find in the, in the code. Uh, the the ideas on why should we punish, what are the justifications for punishment. But there are very various countries where you can find them, and you find them in a, in a mixed way, both retributive and utilitarian aspects. Yeah, but from a philosophical perspective, that these theories are not very easily combined because the one theory looks backwards, the other other theory looks forward, and um, uh, especially when you look at a, a very Kantian way of, of punishment, you, you say you can't use people 
as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. People are a means in, in themselves. And from a, a, a utilitarian perspective, um, people are used as a means to an end. But on the other hand, wouldn't they work out if you would combine them? I mean, you 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 um, you, you um, punish people because they did a p- public wrong or, or however you want to call it, mm-hmm. committed an offense. True. Um, and on the other hand, at the same time, you um, stop others from committing the crimes yeah. in a future sense. Well, what we have a solution for that in the Netherlands. Um, uh, it's also a theoretical solution. And that is that you begin with um, retribution. Um, for punishment, you have to have a crime that has been committed by a person who did it uh, uh, because he had a free will uh, during the uh, uh, when he committed the crime. Um, and then when we have decided that he is eligible for punishment and he can be punished and he will be punished, then we are discussing... Uh, whether or not it should be a good thing to punish him because um, uh, whether or not it should deter him or society or, and we haven't discussed that, or make him better, mm-hmm. re-socialize him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's, of course, uh, the combination is very common, especially in legal practice in the Netherlands and elsewhere, that you see the combination, you are, uh, you are uh, punished because you have committed a crime and because you're punishable, you're liable because you've committed a crime and you have committed it out of a free will. And uh, uh, when we think about what kind of punishment we should inflict, what is the best punishment for you and for society, then uh, not only retributive, but especially utilitarian Uh, arguments come into play and how does this look like um, nowadays is this rather community hours or um, is this mostly applied in um, sending uh, offenders to uh, clinics to um, to rehabilitate or um, Mm. is, is there a huge amount of for example community hours in the netherlands or is that rather not really used yeah how to resocialize? What are the means of resocializing? Yeah. Um, well, we used to be the champion of uh, of all sorts of punishments, except um, imprisonment. Okay. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say that we invented uh, a community service. We didn't, of course, but we we uh, we use we use it as well, and. Um, I think the the problem is that that um, uh, we nowadays see that judges, but also others, think that community services do not work. That has not to do with the community service as such, but uh, but the practice um, um, because of budget cuts, because of all sorts of uh, uh, issues, very practical issues. Uh, we see that that community service um, is not functioning very well um, because there is more than just a sentence. There's more than saying, "Hey, clean the street." You have to have um, yeah, you have to clean institutions. the institutions. Yeah, yeah, that and you have institutions yeah. to yeah. to um, yeah what help we, with it. Yeah, yeah, what we see in the Netherlands is that that uh, yeah, you you're getting a, a community service. You have to clean the street. You have to to uh, to work at a, a hospital or a school or whatever um, to um, 
what we see nowadays is that the the service that uh, that that is responsible for executing that sentence um, um, has many difficulties in in really implementing those those sanctions because of budget cuts and and doesn't work very good the other problem is um, um, that many people who commit crimes um, are mentally not very stable mm -hmm. so to speak um, and are sometimes not even able to work not because they are physically handicapped, for example, but just that they haven't worked ever uh, or that they are mentally not very capable of doing that. Um, and, and, and sometimes you see, and then I'm a bit hesitant to speak about this because I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, uh, on this topic, but yeah. what you see is that, um, that, that judges... Um, uh, also are familiar with these problems um, uh, and they are therefore hesitant to uh, to 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 uh, give those punishments um, so what you're saying is that they would rather try alternative means than the community service um, maybe okay here get a month of uh, <laughs> Imprisonment well, instead of having well, to work, which won't work ever because yeah, there's not enough. Uh, yeah. What you see is that resources. that if you get a community service, um, it is also uh, there is always the uh, the um, obligation to to really do that community service. And if you are failing to do the community service, the uh, service, uh, the probation service that uh, uh, well uh, sees whether or not you have done your community service reports to the public prosecution service and says he failed to uh, do his community service. And then the public prosecution service goes to the courts and says, well, he didn't do what he had to do. Uh, we want to, uh, to put him in prison because uh, that is then the, uh, the, the effect. If you are, uh, did not do your community service, you can be put in prison. And what you see is that what you see is that judges uh, have been uh, judges have seen many cases where the community service failed and then they had to put a person in prison and judges will think well those community services they don't do not work so why even bother to punish them with the community service when we know that one way or another they have, they're going to prison yeah so but that is a very um um it is a very important issue now, the effectiveness of punishments in the Netherlands um, and also the effectiveness of other measures uh, like, putting people, uh, like pu putting people into uh, uh, mental hospitals. Um, um, very dangerous people who have committed serious crimes can put in, uh, in mental hospitals. Um, that can be for a very long time, but we also see that judges are very hesitant to do that because... Uh, they do not know whether that measure uh, works or not um, because uh, they are put in a mental hospital. You would think that they are going to be uh, taken care of, uh, cured, if possible. But what we see is that doesn't always happen. So judges think, well, we're not going to, uh, to, to give him that measure. We're going to put him in jail. 
which is probably not a very good thing because he has a mental problem uh, and he's probably, well, he, he will get some help in prison, but it, it won't help him uh, uh, dealing with his uh, mental problems or even curing him or whatever. So the effectiveness of, of punishments and measures is a very important topic because if judges are not um, do not believe in certain punishments, uh, then they will uh, probably go back to, to the old punishments, in, in particular imprisonment. And the, fact, the question is that, uh, whether or not that is a good idea. Can I just be punished for something that is um, a punishable offense? Come again? Can I just be punished for something that is written down, that is existence as an offense? Mm -hmm. Or are there ways of punishing me without having broke, touched that defense? So is the codified way the only way that is possible? Uh, or not? Yeah. In in uh, from a, 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 a civil law perspective, it is is the code, um, the laws, the written laws that decide um, uh, or that yeah that decide whether the the, uh, the democratic chosen legislator decided what acts are punishable and um, therefore also what acts are not, but especially what acts are punishable. So. Um, uh, From a uh, continental perspective, this is very important. From a, 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 a common law perspective, it is, well, not... It is, of course, very important, but common law uh, originated from legal practice. Uh, classical common law uh, crimes uh, are made by judges, are developed in courts, not by a legislator, and that is, uh, in a civil law perspective, the other way around. Uh, it is the legislator that has decided uh, what are the crimes, what are the definitions of crimes, and what should be the punishments, especially the maximum punishments and, in some cases, the minimum punishments. And that idea that the legislator decides what is punishable and what is not um, can be seen in, in a very uh, important principle, the principle of legality. Uh, which is an internationally recognized principle. It is also in the European Court of uh, Human, European Convention of Human Rights, Article 7. It's in the International Convention for uh, the Protection of uh, Civil and Political Rights. Um, uh, it is in various uh, uh, international and legal documents, um, uh, and it's also in, in, in the various codes of many countries, uh, Belgium, France, Germany, the Netherlands. Um, the principle of legality is... Uh, like all topics concerning criminal law, uh, an issue that is very old, but also relatively new. It's very old in a way that people uh, tend to think that the principle of legality originates from the Roman period. Um, that is probably not true, uh, but some people still think it is. Uh, I think, uh, and most people and most scholars agree, that the principle of legality originated from the uh, Enlightenment period, and the period of codification, uh, uh, which we have discussed uh, um, uh, earlier this, uh, this, this talk. Um, and the idea of the principle of legality is the protection of people, the protection of citizens, um, and the protection of citizens against um, punishments which are not based on uh, a written law. Um, uh, in... in It is not only you're not allowed to be punished 
if there is no punishment in the law, but it is also that you're, it is not allowed to um, to to uh, make you criminally liable without actively without um, having mm-hmm. a written down code. So it's not only the punishment, but also the definition uh, of an uh, of an offense, which should be written down in a uh, in a code. I have briefly mentioned that um, in my last episode with Bramakemans, and um, I always like to bring it up: um, the Nuremberg Prozesse, or mm-hmm. um, then the prosecution, even nowadays, of Nazi. Nazis in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that more or less something that completely speaks against what you just said? Um, I mean, there is a lot of international law involved now, um, but especially the German state is still prosecuting mm-hmm. those guards. Um, and under the laws back then, it was not a criminal offense. Yeah, well, that has been... Debated. Debated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was. Um, the the point is that if you look at the uh, the uh, the charters um, uh, on the basis of which the Nuremberg and uh, Tokyo tribunals came into existence, um, it states that there are various um, uh, new well crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, etc. Um, um, and if you look at the charter, it's it's not saying these are new crimes, and um, we are going to uh, say that these crimes are um, are were punishable since well mm-hmm. uh, uh, before we uh, we uh, implemented this charter. It says that these crimes were already punishable under law, customary law. Under customary international mm-hmm. law, and therefore the pr- the principle of legality wasn't breached. That is the issue. Okay. And that and, and but of course um, uh, uh, there weren't any written um, uh, written laws national on a national level where those crimes were uh, were not allowed from from a from a very uh, strict interpretation of the uh, principle of legality. There is an issue in the but Netherlands. Th- th- that's yeah? in general the. Um the issue a lot of law students, I guess, also have sometimes, um, that you have the emotional aspect, um, the logical emotional aspect of the humankind that then says, of course, we have to prosecute mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. But then you look at the law side and then you say maybe... Mm. Yeah, well, um, you can say... Um, uh, as I already said, from a very strict interpretation of uh, of the principle of legality, um, uh, the crimes that were committed, or the offenses, or the acts that were committed um, during the Nazi period, during the Second World War, after the invasion of Poland in the thirty nine, uh, and even before, um, um, they were not punishable under uh, German the then German criminal law. Hmm. The question is, of course, and many people have stated it, uh, that is highly debatable because there were murders, there were rapes, there were <laughs> yeah, all those crimes were, all those acts were criminal under the existing German mm-hmm. uh, penal code and other penal codes in uh, that were in existence in, in Europe at that time. The issue, of course, is, is the major new crimes of war crimes. There were more general crimes, of course. Um, uh, and which does make sense, though, if you look at current legal proceedings, that the um, 
the proceedings are always um, for murder in 220 cases, True, for example. So then it actually doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. um, to prosecute under that uh, or to punish under this um, aspect. Yeah, well, and that, that of course, was not the issue uh, at the Nuremberg tribunals uh, yeah. uh, uh, and other tribunals as well, but because they were punishable not under uh, national law. They were punishable under international customary law, and that was, that was the big issue. That was the big difference. But um, the German scholar Radbuch, um, uh, made the difference between uh, between gesetzliches Recht und gesetzliches Unrecht, and the issue, of course, was it was the the crimes that were committed were so the legal right and legal wrong for people that true there were there, there were um, um, uh, those were crime those were crimes that were partly allowed under German law that was in existence at that time mm -hmm. um so we were i'm just saying well it was punishable under uh, articles uh, of the then uh, german penal code but was not entirely true and they needed something to to uh, to punish those people who th thought and who said i only did what i was ordered to do and i was allowed to do it so they needed something new so to speak and uh what and it is a very interesting invention, of course. Very well, uh, 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 yeah, very interesting invention to say. Well, under uh, customary law, which already existed when the Second World War started, people were saying this is this is out of order. This is not allowed. Yeah. Um, um, so there wasn't a, a breach in the principle of legality from that point of view, but. And you, if you see at article two of, at the paragraph two of Article Seven of the European Convention, you see the same thing. You see that that uh, the principle of legality is not breached uh, when the crimes uh, when the crimes that were committed were crimes under international humanitarian law. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is not saying um, uh, in those cases uh, there is no principle of legality. There is a principle of legality, but uh, the explanation or the the uh, the width of that uh, uh, principle changes a bit when it comes to those specific cases, um, and then that, that is that is not very um, that is not something something new because if you look at various penal codes in 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 Europe concerning uh, concerning criminal law. Um, uh, there are various breaches in, uh, in 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 the principle of legality. For example, if a new code or new act uh, come, comes into existence and it is more favorable for the defendant, um, uh, even if that new act came into existence after the, the act has been committed, then the new act uh, can be used. That is also in breach, you can say, in the principle of legality, if you... Uh, uh, look into it in a very strict way. If you explain it in a very and interpret it in a very strict way, but then it is in favor of the defendant, and when it's in favor of the defendant, we are more inclined to 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 allow those changes. What of course happened in the Nuremberg trials was it was not in favor, but in disfavor, and that is and that makes it um, uh, from a perspective of why do you have the principle of legality protecting people? Then is of course. There's a tension there. There's a tension, yeah. So it's still understandable that 
even after what is it 70 years after the uh, the, uh, the the charters uh, came into existence we still debate this issue mm-hmm. um, back to the the, the 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 broad concept of the pr- principle of legality if you yeah. would have to um, maybe maybe uh, say it, say in one sentence or two sentences mm. what is this principle what does it entail what does it mean for for criminal law Oh, the principle of legality is the the most well one of the most important principles of criminal law because it's it's from a European continental perspective it is it, it it's it says uh, you have to write down your criminal law you do not only have to write it down but you have to write it down very clearly uh, that is called the bestimmtheitsgebot uh, or lex certa the first is the lex scripta you have to write your laws down um uh You have to interpret your laws very strictly. So it is it is not only um, uh, a principle which is important for the legislator uh, on what to legislate and how to legislate and that you have to legislate uh, when it comes to criminal law, but it also uh, gives an idea on uh, uh, what is the interpretation freedom of judges because in the, uh, we already discussed it from a perspective of uh, Trias Politica, the the courts have to be very restricted in in interpreting the law and the principle of legality is a uh, well an expression of that it it says that judges are allowed to interpret the law but they have to be well, restricted so to speak and the question of course is when what kind of restrictment do you want to have and and that that depends on how you trust your courts countries where you have a big confidence in courts you see that uh, the principle of legality is interpreted in such a way that courts are allowed to to um, interpret in a very wide way where are in, in in countries where traditionally courts are not really um, trusted you see a very strict interpretation of the interpretation freedom of judges so that in a in a in a in a nutshell is the principle of legality next to um, substantive criminal law, um, there's also criminal procedure, mm-hmm. procedural law. And um, I, I would say now, without being obviously the expert on that topic, that some of those aspects that we talked about um, also play a role then in the procedure that the state takes to prosecute. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on what criminal procedure differentiates from substantive criminal law? Well, you can say that the criminal law came into existence because um, inflicting punishments, um, people cannot inflict punishments. Only the state can. From a, if it is when it comes to criminal law, people can inflict, of course, punishments on their own. But when it comes to to the punishments which are written down in the penal code, you have to have a government and. The government has to have rules uh, on the basis of which it can eventually inflict punishments. And you can only inflict punishments on people who have committed crimes, who have uh, been found guilty. Uh, And in order to be found guilty, you have to have proof that a person has committed a crime. Uh, And in order to have proof, you have to have an investigation um, uh, done by uh, government officials uh, in order to detect crimes and to determine uh, what crime was being committed and who committed the crime. So procedural law is, is uh, from a traditional point of view, meant to, to um, uh, 
well is meant to 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 help the government uh, uh, to uh, take the necessary steps in order to be able to punish people and on the same time um, um, criminal procedural law is also meant to protect citizens against uh, uh, interference of governments interference of of uh, uh, prosecutors police judges um, uh, when they are not um, uh, when they have not committed a crime and and these safeguards that you've just mentioned yeah. um, differentiate from well from system to system from ideolo- at least from the ideological part so there um, the, the the scholar pecker mm-hmm. um, has established that there is a so-called crime control yeah and you process model yeah what is what are those two models what what differentiates them well, the crime control model explicit well states that that the functioning and the purpose of uh, criminal procedure is um, to uh, to control crime, so to speak, uh, which means that uh, 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 those who have committed crimes are being uh, investigated and are being tried uh, and punished. Uh, that is the and the the purpose of the criminal procedure is to to uh, to punish those who have committed crimes. The due process model of uh, of criminal procedure is that the sole purpose of uh, the criminal law in general, and the criminal procedure in, in in particular, is meant to protect citizens, um, and is that uh, uh, that uh, uh, police investigation uh, trials uh, should be uh, installed in such a way that it protects the rights uh, and liberties and freedoms of people. Um, so there is a Dutch scholar, which is called Peters, and who said, well, there, the, the crime control model is um, uh, policing society, whereas the due process model is policing the police. And that gives a very, very good idea of what those models mean the the crime control model is is uh, society has to be controlled the criminal procedure has to have uh, 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 all sorts of means necessary to to inflict punishment on those who have committed crimes whereas the due process model uh, uh, inflicting punishment yes okay very well that is the, uh, the of course that happens but the most important aspect of criminal procedure is that it has to protect citizens and it has to control the police in uh, using their investigative mes- methods and it has to control the judges uh, when they trial uh, uh, defendants. How big are the differences in this area when you take a comparative approach? Oh, are there still huge differences? or From a theoretical perspective, these two uh, models uh, differ quite a lot. But if we look at practice... We Especially see- in, the, in the legal systems now, I mean, like the criminal procedure that is actually happening, that's working in the different... Um Systems. It is a combination of crime control and mm-hmm. due process. Uh, what we see, um, uh, what 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 scholars used to say, uh, is that um, uh, that, that uh, the classical view of, of of criminal procedure is is crime control, and that uh, when the uh, European Court European Court of Human Rights became more and more important from the 1970s, and the European Convention became more and more important, then you see that. 
people were tending to say that Article 6 of the Convention and other articles which uh, deal with uh, criminal procedure, um, they uh, try to put in a more due process idea on the criminal procedure. Um, uh, and what we now see also in the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights is, is trying to get a balance, <coughs> excuse me, to try to get a balance between the two of them. Um, uh, because the European Court of Human Rights also says there are positive obligations to uh, to prosecute, for example, specific cases, especially cases when it comes to um, the right of life, um, uh, but also uh, um, uh, against the, the, the right um, not to be enslaved, Article 4, you see there are positive obligations to prosecute and to punish, not well, not to punish, but especially to prosecute, to investigate uh, those uh, those issues. There's, so you can see that where people used to say, well, the European Court of Human Rights gives us a due process model and, and inflicts a due process model on our classical crime control criminal procedure, you now see that, the, of course, the European Court of Human Rights also emphasizes uh, uh, the right of access to a lawyer, uh, the soldier's case law, etc., etc. Very important from a due process model, but it also says sometimes you have to investigate and prosecute, which is, well fits more into a crime control. So what you see, um, and not only on the European continent, but also in the United States and Canada and, and, and in the United Kingdom, you see trying to get a balance. But I think that many people will say now, um, and there are many people who have discussed this before, and I'm not the first one who's, who says this, is that um, what we see, especially in the fight against terror, but also in other uh, in other issues, we see that the crime control model has become more and more important again. We've seen a, a, a time where due process was more important, 1970s, the 1980s, but from the 1990s onwards, and especially uh, since the terrorist attacks and the um, um, well, the attempts to fight terrorism, terrorism all over the world, you see that the crime control model gains momentum again. Um, to the detriment of the due process model. And that's a very good point, isn't it? Generally, to accept that, especially since 9-11, um, that not even not only criminal procedure but also substantive criminal law have sh has shifted in some way that it didn't go before those events. Did it get more strict? Did it get more punishable? More, um, yeah, higher sentences, etc. Maybe even more unfair from a very Mm. Objective perspective, maybe. Well, if you realize that in various countries the the debate on uh, capital punishment is back, Turkey, for example, mm -hmm. but also the Philippines, um, uh, and in other countries there are also issues whether or not uh, the capital punishment should be reinstated. Um, that is only an example, but it's a very well, um, very interesting example, so to speak. Uh, to put it more objectively, um, to say that that uh, crime control has gained momentum again, uh, not only when it comes to to uh, to uh, criminal procedure, um, to to but also when it comes to to substantive criminal law and the the punishments. Yes, you see many new crimes, um, and um, what you also see, and that is also very important and very interesting, is that. You do not only see new crimes, but you also see 
existing crimes redefined and and uh, the new definition of of old crimes uh, have become much more broad um, have become broader so to speak than than Meaning the old it's, definition it's opener to like yeah. it's more easy to put someone in this definition of the crime yeah 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 you do not you, you see that in the netherlands where we have various examples when it comes to the fight against terror but also against other uh, other uh, other acts other issues uh, you see that uh, the definition of crimes have broadened um, also in the the fight against uh, uh, child pornography for example uh, which is of course a very serious offense um uh, uh, which should be dealt with of course with a very in a very serious way but uh, what you see is that the way in which to deal with that is to broaden the definition so more <laughs> acts are um uh, can become punishable which makes it much more difficult to search for the boundaries when mm-hmm. to, when a 16 year old girl makes a photograph of her 17 year old bo- boyfriend they're both naked and they're both in a certain position under Dutch law and also under various other uh, legislation, that is punishable. Where you can ask yourself, should that type of acts be punishable? Yeah. Um, because the, their boyfriend and girlfriend and are doing that because they like each other, whatever. So um, uh, uh, in the fight against uh, specific um, uh, phenomena, terrorism child pornography but also other phenomena you see the the broadening of definitions of crimes uh, with subsequent questions what is the what are the boundaries of the criminal law and who should decide those boundaries is it the legislator Uh, is it the courts Um, uh, and what should they do uh, and that brings us back to other issues we have discussed already. So you see, in, in nowadays, and, and that is a very interesting era uh, for criminal lawyers, uh, the, 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 we see old issues re-emerging. Uh, uh, we, see, uh, we see new issues, uh, but they also are issues we have, be, we have seen earlier. Um, we have dealt with them. But are those solutions uh, applicable in the new in new situations? Um, that is very interesting. Isn't that us. the beauty of law that it's developing? It is. <laughs> it is absolutely. Having talked about um, a lot of uh, philosophical aspects, um, you also being a professor of philosophy of law and uh, a judge substitute in um, the North Holland um, court. How do you apply, like, that, that might be the one question, but how do all these f- philosophical aspects, the theories, um, come into play? Let, well, let me first state uh, for the record that I'm not a professor of philosophy of law, but a professor uh, of philosophy of criminal law. Um, yeah, uh, pardon. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. Um, it is not easy to use those uh, those insights uh, uh, in in legal practice. Um, uh, the uh, functionings of court and the way courts function do not really allow uh, to go into a highly philosophical debate, um, and that is, of course, you can imagine. Well, you can you can wonder whether or not that is the task of a judge to uh, to to uh, to to become more philosophical. He has to decide in a specific certain case, and he has to decide it on the basis of the law. Um, um, but 
of course, uh, judges have to take into account, uh, especially when it comes to punishment, um, uh, on the basis of what should we punish, but also on on, on, on other issues, uh, on issues of crime control. Uh, should we allow the police to to expand their uh, um, um, their possibilities to to uh, to to investigate certain acts? Um, uh, do we allow that, or do we don't we do we not? Um, uh, those are also questions of uh, which which are very practical, of course, because you have the police uh, investigate in a specific way, which is not entirely based on the law because they're doing a bit more but well okay it falls within the scope of the law perhaps or not you can you can you can discuss those issues very practical and you can say okay does it feel fall into fall in the law does it is in uh, in accordance with the law or is it not you can also say what well, what is the job of the police uh what are they for and what should they do so you can you can you can it is imaginable that judges can also take into account more philosophical questions. Some judges do, others don't. Um, sometimes um, I try to, but those issues are very rare because um, you have to imagine that m many cases uh, where judges, uh, in which judges have to decide, are very straightforward cases. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I always say the criminal law is uh, stupid people doing stu something stupid, <laughs> um, uh, and and there are no you can't say that a philosophical debate then is really really necessary uh, in and in, in deciding a very specific case. It is in general, and and judges do in general discuss um, uh, their work and 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 uh, uh, their position. Um, but in, in specific cases, sometimes it's necessary, but not always. Jerome, what is state-caused harm, to sum it up? State-caused harm is um, a, a very old, uh, a, a very uh, prominent, but also a very difficult topic. It's a very, um, it is a topic where people should, uh, should, should not think it is easy. The criminal law is uh, uh, one of the most difficult parts of the law, um, uh, not because it is uh, because its doctrines are very difficult, but because it deals with s issues with our which are ethically so difficult and so interesting that you have to uh, you can't stop thinking about it. Jerome Tenvorde is uh, Associate Professor of Criminal Law and Criminal Procedure at the University of Leiden and Professor of Philosophy of Criminal Law at the University College of Groningen. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you.